Fifteen years sounds like a long time, but it goes by faster than you would imagine. This is the Plymel family in 1997. That's Daniel wearing a 101 Dalmatians hat. And uh, little Michael in the middle and sweet Catherine thinking about when she's going to get married. Out in the middle of the desert of Arizona or Utah, somewhere there. But uh, 15 minutes, 15 years goes by like 15 minutes. It's all of a sudden we flash forward and here we all are again. And we've added a member to the family there with Brother Dustin Peckman. Our daughter changed her name now. She's Catherine Peckman. But, uh, you know, 15 years goes by fast. And uh, I am up here tonight to share with you a few things that the Lord has put on my heart. Excuse me, while I put my glasses on. My name is Brian Plymel. I'm one of the elders in the church here. We were converted, my wife Karen and I, in November 1978. We were baptized the same day when we first met each other at the University of Colorado. And uh, I was recently given a promotion at uh, work. I worked for an international real estate company called Heinz, H-I-N-E-S. And I was uh, promoted to vice president of property management. And I oversee the Southern California portion of our portfolio, and uh, recently we added another million square feet in Las Vegas, so I've been doing a little traveling lately, and I'm sorry I haven't seen as much of you, but hopefully that will settle down now. So I oversee about 110 people and, uh, and about uh, 10 million square feet, and that's my day job. And I was fortunate enough to uh, attend a conference in Houston a couple weeks ago for all of the officers of our company, and the book, Good to Great, which came out several years ago, written by a man named Jim Collins, um, was uh, featured at our conference, and Jim Collins came and spoke to us. And uh, it was very fascinating. But the book, for those of you who have not read it, studies in depth. It was actually written by a professor. uh, Jim Collins is a professor at uh, the University of Colorado at the time. Now he's at Stanford. But he and a research team, and he's actually a mathematician by training, they studied every publicly traded company in America, and they looked at trends for companies who went from being good to becoming great. And they defined great as a company that performed three times better than their peers, all right, three times, not just 3%, three times better than their peers, over a 15-year period of time. They figured that that would show true greatness. And so they had a very short list of companies that fell into that category that qualified in that way. And I am going to share a few notes from that lesson as part of my introduction. Okay, And then we'll get into our lesson tonight. But, you know, I want you to think about where you want to be 15 years from now. Where do you want to be? Do you want to be great? Not just tonight, but 15 years from now. 
If you want to be great for God. It's interesting as we go into this study that the business world has come up with some of these concepts that we're going to talk about because they sound amazingly personal, such as only fanatics are truly great. Next one. Great organizations are the result of choice and discipline. Now, guys, these came from my notes. The book may say it a little differently, but this is just what I wrote down. That greatness does take a, a it requires a decision, an ongoing decisions, and the discipline to exercise what is really called for greatness. He told a story, Jim Collins told this story of the two, two exploration parties that went out to conquer South Pole, to be the first people to ever go to the South Pole. And that they both left at the same time. However, one of them went to the South Pole and returned 10 days early. The other one didn't make it and actually died about a few miles short of their supply depot. And the study of the two different groups, one of the major differences that came out of it was that one group went 20 miles every day regardless of the weather, their health, their supplies, the dog sleds, whatever it was, they were going to go 20 miles. And if it was good weather and everybody was feeling good and the dogs were happy and the food was abundant, they still went 20 miles. That this idea of discipline also applies to not getting too far out over your, getting overconfident. And he talked about how great organizations make a distinctive impact on all that they touch. Doesn't that sound like what we want to do? Lasting endurance is the result of multiple generations of leaders. There's no quick fix, no charismatic person that's going to come in and turn around a company. In the same way in the kingdom of God, no one charismatic figure is going to be leading us into eternity. It requires generation upon generation of raising up leaders who believe in the cause. Now, this is what fascinated me the most, was the thing that separated good leaders from great leaders, the X factor, as they call it, the thing that makes the difference. And this is, again, studying the companies that did three times better over a 15-year period of time than all of their competition, a very small number of CEOs. This was the common distinguishing characteristic between them and the, a lot of the big-name people that we probably heard of, like Lee Iacocca or Jack Welch, who didn't make this list. Humility. They wanted other people to get the credit. They wanted the company's well-being ahead of their own. They put their own, the organization ahead of themselves. They described their view as a mirror and a window. That the mirror reflected on them when there were mistakes. They looked at what could I have done to prevent this. But when it came time for credit to be given when there was a success, they saw a window. They looked at all the people who contributed to the success of the organization. The other part of it was a ferocious will. They made tough decisions. They persevered when it was difficult. And they were non-sentimental. Ferocious will describes a great leader. 
Next, fanatic discipline characterizes every great organization. That means in their thinking, what they think about, in their spending, in their planning, not trying new things just for the sake of new things, but having the discipline to say no to things that are going to take them off of their mission. And the next one, I love, this one just hit me. The signature of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. Mediocre companies are good when things are good. And then they get lulled into a false sense of security when the bad happens. And they do poorly. The signature of mediocrity is chronic inconsistency. Great organizations preserve core values stimulate progress at the same time. It's kind of like the yin and the yang. He used that example, which I'm not an adherent to necessarily Eastern religions of any kind. But I think there is this. You've got to do two things at the same time. Preserve core values, stimulate progress. This is like in a great family. As parents, you stand by your guns. You have your convictions. You, you're building a family that has a culture that you believe in, the, the values you stand for. And yet at the same time, you have to be open to the growth of your family, to their maturing, that they can now take greater responsibility. They don't, you don't treat them like they, you did five years ago. You've got to grow and adapt with them and be willing to grow as, a, as an organization but as a family as well. Next one, empirical creativity. I love this one. Empirical means you run the experiment, you observe the results of an experiment, and you come to a conclusion from it. Empirical creativity, great organizations learn from others' experience and then adapt it to their situation. I saw this and I thought, man, that sounds like discipleship. You watch what other people are doing, and if it works, you imitate it. But you kind of modify it so that it fits your situation. Greatness is determined by how well you capitalize on luck events. This was a, one of the big things they really wrestled with. As mathematicians, they didn't believe in luck. And yet every one of these CEOs that they met with said, you know what, I've just been a lucky guy. Or you know what, I was just in the right place at the right time. Or you know, I just was so glad I hired this person. And what they realized was that they had to define luck events. Some are good, some are bad. But what it came down to was how people dealt with those events. Sounds like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? All things work together for good good or bad. What do you do with it? And that's what Jim Collins and this team of master's degree candidates came to the conclusion of. Now, here's the crazy thing about it, about all this. You know all this, don't you? Am I, have I told you anything and you just said, whoa, I never realized that before? I mean, I'm not breaking new ground for any of us, right? You know, these are the qualities that are so fascinating because they're backed up by research, thousands of hours of companies over a 15-year period of time who did three times better than their competition. That's what's fascinating about this. But the reality is we know this stuff. The corporate world admires it. They're intrigued by it because they haven't heard it before. But we have, haven't we? So the question tonight is, do you want to be great? There's something in every one of us that wants to be great, that wants to make a difference, that wants to change the world around us. 
But, you know, I, I think for many of us, we've settled for good. Many of you don't know how great you are. Somebody asked, What's your, what have you observed since you moved to Long Beach? That's been the biggest thing. Is I think many of you do not realize the greatness that lies within you. And, and so we've settled for good. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 2. I'd like to share a verse here. It's great to talk about what the business world's come up with, but that ain't going to change your life. Nor will we be judged by it on the day of eternity. But John, Romans chapter 2, look what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in verse 7 of Romans 2. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So even Paul said it out there. He said, look, guys, you can chase the glory or you can please yourself. It's a decision that we have to make every day. Do I want to be great for God? Or do I want to just make myself happy? So tonight, we are going to be talking about a man who wanted to be great and the man who made him great. That picture there, that's not an actual photograph, but that is an artistic rendition of the Apostle Paul falling from his horse. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 22. We're going to read about Paul. Actually, my, my reference on the screen is incorrect. It is, we are starting in chapter 22, verse 1. The, the context starts up earlier where Paul is, is in prison and uh, he says, Hey, can I speak to the crowd? And they say, Okay, we'll let you, we'll let you talk to them. So he begins this sermon and in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 22. Paul says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak, In Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but was brought up in this city. This is Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Paul was destined for greatness. He was doing everything he could possibly do to be a man of God. He studied under Gamaliel. And if you've ever known anybody, even today, anybody who's a rabbi, these guys relentlessly study the scriptures. They relentlessly pursue holiness and righteousness. They are extremely moral. 
as they live their lives. And Gamaliel was one of the key influential teachers of the day. Paul was so zealous, he was going to stamp out this Christianity because it was blaspheming God. And he wasn't going to tolerate that until Jesus came along. And he came face to face with Jesus. And he asked the question, this is the title of the lesson tonight, Who are you, Lord? This was the only question that really mattered. As Paul was wrestling with all of a sudden going blind and realizing, maybe I've been wrong all this time. And it's the same question for us today. Who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus to you? Think about that. You know, it kind of struck me as I was, I was really fired up about the opportunity to do this lesson tonight. Because I've been thinking about Jesus. And it was just so perfect that this lesson, who are you, Lord? It's like, awesome. I get to talk about who Jesus is. Because I've just been reflecting on that. I've been thinking about him and about how much more there is to know about him. And how you never get tired of, of learning about him. There's always new dimensions to him. And, um, and, and yet I, I started going back through my notes from our past sermons. We've had a lot of lessons about Jesus this year. Have you realized that? You probably have. But I, wanna, I want you to really think, what have I acquired about Jesus? What have I learned about him? Let's go over to Philippians chapter 3. You know, 15 years is a long time, but it goes by like that. And the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians probably about 20 years or so after he was converted. Maybe 25, kind of depends on who's doing the math on when, and when, those, when his conversion occurred and when the uh, book of Philippians was written. But look what Paul is saying. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And he was single. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've given up, I've lost all things, but I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of suffering, of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Isn't that powerful? This is 20 years into the kingdom, and Paul is saying, I want to know Christ better. And if possible, I want to share in some of his sufferings. I want to know what it's like to feel like Jesus felt. 
That's the kind of intimacy and desire he had. And you know, think about what do you want in your life? More sleep? You know, would that make a difference? How about more friends? That would help, right? Maybe more money. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I'll get around the corner as soon as I start making more money. But in the meantime, I just need some time off. A little time to get away, to get my head together. How about more respect? You know, if people would respect me, if my wife would respect me a little more, my Bible talk would respect me a little more. If my husband showed a little more respect for me and the kids. You know, if I started getting some A's, I think I could do pretty well as a disciple. That's those of you in high school, junior high, college, okay. <laughs> you know, I need some more square footage. We need a bigger house. We need to add on. That's, that's going to make a difference. Actually... I'll take more horsepower. Yeah, baby. That's right. I'd like 300 horsepower. I'd just do fine. Um, you know, I, if I just had more time, that's really what I need. I'm too busy. Or maybe if I had more fruit. You know, I mean, all these things, there's nothing really wrong with any of these, really. But if you're waiting for those, you know, that's where you're putting your hope. That's where you're putting your confidence. What if you just became more like Jesus? What kind of difference would that make if you became more like Jesus? Jesus, um, go back two. <laughs> Keep going back. Go back one more. There we go. Let's just stop right there. Thank you. Okay, um, what is a disciple? Follower, student, what else? Student, follower, follower, student, imitator. Okay, a disciple is a fanatic. Fanatic. They're a fanatic imitator of Jesus. The disciples in Jesus' day... And there weren't just 12. There were hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands of disciples of Christ. And we've heard dozens of lessons about Jesus this year. And we've heard dozens of lessons about discipleship. But you know, it gets down to us becoming like Him. Being fanatical about thinking like Him, acting like Him, walking like Him, talking like Him treating people like him. That's what it is to be a disciple. Sometimes I fear we get too strong on what it, on teaching about discipleship without talking about who we're disciples of. There's a difference, right? We can become disciples of discipleship if we're not careful. That would not be good. Because that's a that's a you're, you're, that's a concept on a concept. We're disciples of Christ. So, we're back to the question, who are you, Lord? This was the only question that really mattered. We look ahead and Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ, the power and the power of his resurrection, 
and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. How was it that Paul was going to learn about Christ? He had a a few minutes with him when he got knocked off his horse, and then that was it. How was he going to know Christ? Anybody? He had to go talk to the apostles, right? Hey, Peter. What was, it, what was it really like? What did he do? Peter, you know, I had three years with him. How much time do you have? Let me tell you about his character. Let me tell you about his love. Oh, Paul, I, I just forgot one. Let me tell you about this, this time when he forgave some, somebody. Oh, 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 and there's that other time when he really got so upset about the sin that these people were committing because they didn't want to repent. We have the apostles written down here in our Bible and we can read it. So we get the same lessons that Paul got. And that's where we're going to, we have to go through the Gospels and we have to go through the letters to understand who Christ was. You know what's amazing though is that the Holy Spirit didn't want to just record a biography of Jesus. I mean, this book would require a couple of trucks to bring it in if it was the biography of Jesus. You realize there's only about 35 days of Jesus' life that are recorded in the Bible. Assuming he was 33 years old when he died, it's not even one three hundredth of his life was recorded. Because the Holy Spirit wanted us to see his character. Not how tall he was or how good looking he was. Because some of us might think if I was a little more good looking, it didn't matter to Jesus. We have no idea what his net worth was, do we? Can you think of any time where it was, and Jesus pulled out the credit card. Or Jesus said, hey guys, let me get this one. All we know is when he died, he had a robe that some people gambled over, and that was it. He didn't write a, a, a will for his disciples. They weren't arguing over who gets what. Because what was nothing. Okay? But the Bible focuses on Jesus' character. So what should we focus on? Our character. The character of Jesus. How can we become more like him? So what I want to share about tonight is my view of Jesus' character based on my life right now. I'm just going to hit a few of these. Turn over to Matthew 20. But I want you to ask yourself, what's my story of who Jesus is to me? This, is, this lesson really is incomplete, I will tell you right now. Not only because I don't have enough time to tell you all there is to know about Jesus, but it's incomplete because you need to complete it. You need to go home with this lesson and ask yourself, who are you, Lord? And sit down with your Bible and sit down with yourself and your character and say, what do I need? Where do I need to change? Where do I need to grow? How can I be more fanatical? What empirical creativity can I apply here where I look around at other people and I say, something's missing in me because I'm not keeping up with them. Why am I good and not great spiritually? Matthew 20, 26. This is what I'm coming up with. Jesus the serving Jesus. We see here in verse 26, 
where they're talking about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You know, I say this because this is the Jesus I need to become. Not because he's the one I am. Because I'm almost, I'm almost there. I'm almost caught up to him. But you know, Jesus didn't say no to serving unless it would have meant saying no to serving. Okay? He said no to what was most important. I mean, he said yes to what was most important, to serve others. And he set us the example of serving. And I have to, you know, I look at myself and I've really tried now, I'm, I'm trying now to not say no to an opportunity to serve unless it means having to say no to another opportunity to serve that I've already committed to. But, you know, think about it. What would it be like if every time we asked for volunteers for anything, we had more than we needed? Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, Kingdom Kids, we're sorry. We don't have enough classes for all of you to teach. How about next year? If I have to wait that long, okay, I will. We need to clean up here. We need to serve at the Veterans Administration. We need to help out at the women's shelter. We need help. You know what? Somebody needs a meal because they're sick. We rush in because Jesus would probably get there before we did. And so this is the serving Jesus that I want to imitate, that I want to grow in. The other that I want to be like is the consistently praying Jesus. Now, we're not going to turn to all these verses, but you can, you can write them down. I'm going to refer to them. Hebrews 5, 7 says that during his days on earth, Jesus prayed. All right? Jesus just spent a lot of time praying. He was consistently praying. Mark 1, 35 said that he got up early in the morning to go out to pray. Luke 5, 16 says he often withdrew to lonely places. So he could pray, where there's no music, no iPod, no TV, no whatever. Luke 11, 1, he taught other people how to pray. And he taught them to pray daily because they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And he taught them to pray about their physical needs and about the needs of the kingdom. Before he was arrested, he prayed. In John 17, he prayed for his disciples. And in Matthew 27, he prayed the prayer that many of us have had to wrestle with. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Consistent re- prayer requires discipline and humility. It takes discipline. This word's coming up a few times because I'm really convicted about how much discipline I need daily, weekly, hourly, yearly. And also how much humility it takes because I can get sort of comfortable doing things my own way. The other quality of Jesus that I want to imitate is the gentle, caring Jesus. We see in Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus said, How often I have longed to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's pretty gentle. That's kind of feminine. (laughs) Isn't it? Whoa, Jesus, sure you, 
Hey, wait, 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 Matthew, don't write that down. Hey, Lord, you're not a chicken. Jesus said, you're right, I'm not. What's your point? Jesus was gentle. He wasn't a chicken, but he was compassionate. I am a, I am a live and let live kind of guy. If you've been around me, you, you know that. Um, sometimes that works real well, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. But Jesus, he cared. Even though people had to make their own decisions, he still cared about the decision they made. You know, and I've really had to pray and, and seek to be a more caring person. In fact, when I was being considered to be appointed as an elder, this was the one thing Kevin Maines pulled me aside. He said, Brian, you've got to learn to care for people. You've got to learn to care for people who are hard to care for. And he gave me some people, some names. He said, you've got you to become friends with these guys. I'm like, you're right. I really do. And what I've realized, I've really worked hard on this. What I've realized is I can never, ever be too busy to care. Because that's what happened with the two guys who walked by the beat-up dude who's laying by the road. Like, somebody else takes care of him. Ooh, look at the time. Sorry. That's... Did a little study on uh, one of these television programs about why people don't stop to help people in need. Number one reason? I'm too busy. I don't have time. Somebody else can do it. It can never become too busy to care. Jesus was never too busy to care. The purposeful Jesus. This one's convicting because I tend to be somebody who likes to take things as it comes at me. And we see in John chapter 7, in verse 1, let's turn there because I, I just love this. This is one of these little subtle nuggets in the Bible, but it just hits me between the eyes whenever I read it. Because Jesus was extremely purposeful about how he lived his life. And we see in chapter 7 of John, verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. And he knew it wasn't time yet. So you go on down, and there's this festival coming up, and the guys are saying, Jesus, this is perfect. Let's go to the festival. Let's, let's get it on, Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 6, he told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, if you know the rest of the story, he did wind up going up there. But Jesus was deliberate. He was purposeful. He planned what he was going to do. He didn't sit down with his Bible and say, let's see what we're going to read today. He had a mission. He didn't just take things as they came. But he made things happen the way he wanted them to. And then the last one is the hard line Jesus. This one, again, I'm a nice guy. Hebrews chapter 4, we've got to turn over here. I'm a nice guy. I, you know, I can get a little soft at times on other people. 
partly because I'm a little soft on myself. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He cares, right? We talk about that. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was so hard-lined about sin. He would not get close to the temptation once it came. He would not make an excuse for giving into sin. He didn't look around at the other 12 and say, well, they're doing it, why don't I? It's okay. I'll confess it later. He was rigid in the line that he drew about sin. I want to share something from another business book that uh, Karen gave me. I meant to bring it up here with me, but it's called How Will You Measure Your Life? I got this for Father's Day. There was a, uh, and the author, Clayton Christensen, he's a uh, Harvard uh, business professor. And this is what he says. He tell, he's telling about the book, and the one thing he said that people tell him about his book. He's asked, what anecdote from the book best represents the essence of the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? The anecdote that people have responded to most powerfully is the story I've shared about my decision not to play in a basketball championship game when I was a student at Oxford University. I hadn't realized that the final match would be on a Sunday, and I'd made a personal commitment to God that I would never play ball on Sundays. We killed ourselves all season. And our, work, our hard work paid off. We made it all the way to the finals of the British equivalent of the NCAA tournament. So I went to the coach and explained my situation. He was incredulous. I don't know what you believe, he said to me, but I believe that God will understand. My teammates were stunned too. I was the starting center. And my backup had dislocated his shoulder. Every one of the guys on the team came to me and said, you've got to play. Can't you break the rule just this one time? It was a difficult decision to make. We'd been dreaming about this all year. I was the starting center. And he's a nerd. He's a business guy. But he's the starting center of this British basketball team at Oxford University. I'm a deeply religious man. I went away and I prayed about what I should do. As I prayed, I got a very clear feeling that I needed to keep my commitment. So I told the coach I wasn't able to play in the championship game. In so many ways, that was a small decision involving one of several thousand Sundays in my life. In theory, surely I could have crossed over the line just that one time and then not done it again. But looking back on it, Resisting the temptation of, in this one extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay, has proven to be one of the most important decisions of my life. Because life is just one unending stream of extenuating circumstances. Had I crossed the line that one time, I would have done it over and over again in the years that followed. If you give in to just this once, based on a marginal cost analysis, remember he's a nerd, 
It's worth it is what you're telling yourself. Just as one time, it's going to be worth it. You'll regret where you end up. That's the lesson I learned. Listen to this. It's easier to hold to your principles 100% of the time than it is to hold to them 98% of the time. It's easier to hold to your principles 100% of the time than it is to hold to them 98% of the time. The boundary, your personal moral line, is powerful because you don't cross it. Once you've justified doing it once, it's easy to do it again and again and again. Jesus never crossed the line. That inspires me. And I'm thankful I can be forgiven so I can start over again and make the same kind of commitment. And I hope you can too. I believe you can too. So, we get down here and back in Acts chapter 22. And I'm going to close here in just a moment. Paul is there alone with the Lord and he asks the question, What shall I do, Lord? He asked. And that's the question I hope you're asking tonight. What shall I do? What empirical creativity do you want to apply? What can I learn from the people around me about who are following Jesus that I could do what shall I do differently to become more like Christ? Look at your notes and put an asterisk next to whatever it was that hit you. Or write down, what is your next step going to be? Not, I'm going to become pure. Okay, great. You've got to break it down. What's your next step going to be toward becoming pure? Okay? And write that down. And then write down next to that, who is going to help me and hold me accountable. Who's going to help be Jesus for me here on this earth and in this life? And now, what are you waiting for? That's what they asked Paul in verse 16 of Acts 22. Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. That's what it was for Paul. But how about for you? And now, what are you waiting for? Fifteen years starts right now. Who are you going to be in 15 years? Now is the time to know Christ intimately. To ask, who are you, Lord? You don't need to wait until New Year's Day. And now, what are you waiting for? Amen.